The Honorable Chief Justice and Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes, the Supreme Court of North Carolina is now sitting for the dispatch of business. God save the state and this honorable court. Good morning, everyone. Our first case this morning is M.E. versus T.J., and we will hear from the appellant. Thank you, Chief Justice Newby, and may it please the court. I'm Lauren Lapidus with Nelson Mullins for the defendant appellant. Uh, with the court's permission, I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. Defendant's appeal calls on this court's role as the institutional guardian of North Carolina law to protect critical principles of jurisdiction and procedure, which are threatened following the majority opinion below. Despite the Court of Appeals allowing a record amendment, which revealed a jurisdiction-defeating court paper, the plaintiff's own voluntary dismissal of her DVPO complaint, the Court of Appeals ultimately treated that paper as a nullity and failed to address the district court's subject matter jurisdiction over the case, as well as its own jurisdiction on appeal. Then, the majority below categorized as an applied constitutional challenge and developed that argument under the federal and North Carolina constitutions and then declared uh, MC Genstat 50B-1 B6 unconstitutional both as applied to plaintiff and to all others similarly situated. The majority then remanded the cause to the district court for the automatic entry of a DVPO against the defendant without any further hearing based on conduct occurring over three years ago, a disposition unauthorized by 50B-3D. I think we can all agree that the statute at issue is probably unconstitutional in some form or fashion. But that doesn't mean that we can or that we should take shortcuts that avoid applying controlling neutral cornerstone principles of jurisdiction and procedure. Those are the principles that form the bedrock of our system of jurisprudence in North Carolina, which ensures its integrity, its predictability, and its reliability. Since the Court of Appeals majority failed to exercise the independent duty to evaluate its own jurisdiction and that of the district courts, as instructed by this court, among other procedural defaults, this court should vacate the Court of Appeals opinion and either affirm the district court's order or remand that cause to the tribunal and the district court for further proceedings as such action may be required. First, with respect to the independent duty of the Court of Appeals to evaluate its own jurisdiction, from time immemorial, this state According to this court's jurisprudence, has followed four core principles of jurisprudence. They are short, well-established, poignant, and worth repeating here. Subject matter jurisdiction is always purely a legal question. It's not conferred by consent. Two, it's not waivable, and it can be raised at any time on appeal, including during oral argument to this court. Absent subject matter jurisdiction, any resulting judgment is void, not voidable. And when the record shows a lack of subject matter jurisdiction, the appellate court is to vacate any judgment or order entered without such authority. The problem here is that the Court of Appeals majority failed to apply these controlling jurisdictional rules set forth in this court's opinion in INRAE TRP. It reasoned that the issues of the plaintiff's voluntary dismissal and her purported attempt to revive her lawsuit were illuminated not by a formal party, 
but instead by the court-appointed amicus invited to participate as part of the North Carolina Appellate Pro Bono Program and ordered by the Court of Appeals, quote, to defend the trial court's ruling. This court should squarely reject the Court of Appeals' holding and reasoning on this point. Once the Court of Appeals obtained actual knowledge of a record jurisdictional defect based on an order they allowed, allowing that document as part of the record, the law of this state requires that its intermediate appellate court follow the directives as laid out in NRA TRP and address its own jurisdiction ex meru motu. A North Carolina appellate court cannot lack jurisdiction to evaluate its own jurisdiction. And these jurisdictional rules, they're in place for good reason in North Carolina. It's to prevent a court from being forced into a usurpation role and relegated to issuing a void judgment, and also permitting the proper and efficient administration of the court system to distinguish and keep track of live disputes, those that courts actually have the power to decide. A court appointed amici as an invitee of the Court of Appeals to assist it in deciding a complex issue of significant public importance, which is what happened here, they stand in a much more privileged position than a complete stranger to the lawsuit or an uninvited amicus who must act on motion to enter the cause. At the very least, a court-appointed amicus should be able to assist the appellate court by pointing out bedrock issues of jurisdiction and preservation, not just merely responding to only the arguments carefully selected by the appellant. Consistent with this court's analysis in State v. Austin, the right for any, the right for any reason doctrine, a court-appointed amicus who's ordered to defend the trial court's ruling, not upset it, defend it, was invited to help the court to decide whether the district court's presumed to be correct ruling should be affirmed for any reason, which is precisely what happened below. And what's really at stake here is not only the court-appointed amicus's role in this case, but really it's the continued viability of the North Carolina Appellate Pro Bono Practice Program that's at issue too. That program cannot be effective in its mission to assist the appellate courts if its pro bono volunteers are hamstrung to point out threshold considerations of appellate practice and procedure when providing appellate courts with essentially the information they need, which was lacking below, to come to the legally correct result. And of course, the need to observe these foundational principles of jurisdiction and procedure is highlighted in cases like these when we're dealing with issues of public importance where pro se parties were involved in an ex parte proceeding for some of it. Otherwise, the jurisprudence of this state will be relegated to what happened here, which is essentially a 92-page advisory opinion, which has been operating in some time in a zone of jurisdictional confusion until the court issued its opinion. Notwithstanding the Court of Appeals' failure to address the district court's jurisdiction, now the defendant is represented as a party before this court as a purely booting suspenders approach consistent with this court's jurisprudence allowing a party to challenge subject matter jurisdiction for the first time on appeal, including an oral argument to this court, the defendant does so now. The struck-through refiled voluntary dismissal deprived the court below of subject matter jurisdiction and the Court of Appeals' constitutional merits ruling constitutes an impermissible advisory opinion that should be vacated. Now, to that end, this related and salient issue is what does the exercise of the appellate court's duty to evaluate jurisdiction, what does it mean in this case? Can I interrupt just a minute and ask, it seems that there will be arguments suggesting that because this was a pro se individual that they filed the dismissal and then subsequently had a change of mind and that somehow they're striking through it and say 
uh, saying I didn't really intend that, uh, that that somehow revived things. Can you comment about the pro se aspect as well as the timing and any impact that that should have on our analysis? I'd be happy to, Chief Justice Newby. With respect to the pro se aspect first to your question, I think a careful reading of the record below illustrates that it really was the defendant who was the pro se party for the majority of this litigation until now. Because if you look at the record below, the plaintiff was pro se on the 31st of May, 2018, when she uh, went to court to acquire the EVPO. But seven days later, she was represented by an attorney from the legal aid and an attorney from a private law firm in Raleigh. So she had two lawyers seven days later. And then, yeah. Mr. Lapidus, I want you to, would yeah. like you to finish answering the chief's question in just a second, but just to make sure I understand. On the date when the initial complaint was filed, the initial voluntary dismissal was filed when the entries were made on that dismissal form and it was refiled at that time, the uh, plaintiff was proceeding pro se. The lawyers became involved later. Is that correct? That's correct, Justice Irvin. Um, okay. And so would you go back, go back to the chief's question, but I just want to make sure that we got, that I, I got my facts straight. Yes, sir. Yes, yes, Your Honor. That's correct. On, on day one, she was pro se. Seven days later on the hearing when you're coming back to the district court for permanent relief, she had two lawyers. And by the time the court of appeals, uh, the notice of appeal was filed, she had several more. And by the time uh, the court of appeals case was briefed, you know, she had a dozen. Um, it was the defendant really that was the, the pro se party involved here. So um, if I, going back to the, again, just getting the facts correct, um, and focusing just on day one, because that's the day that the pleading was filed that you contend divested the court of any jurisdiction. So on that day, um, do doesn't the record also show that um, the pro se plaintiff was initially told by the trial judge, the district court judge, that she couldn't file a 50B and so she went back to file the dismissal so she could file a 50C complaint. And then within a few minutes, the clerk's office said, no, you can pursue a 50B, even if the judge won't allow it. And the clerk suggested that this pro se litigant withdraw the voluntary dismissal by writing on the form that they intend to withdraw it and that the the withdrawal on the notice of voluntary dismissal was filed within like 38 minutes of the original uh, document being filed. Thank you, Justice Charles. I think the response to that inquiry is those are the allegation, the averments of the plaintiff that she made in an affidavit that was filed for the first time in response to a motion to dismiss at the Court of Appeals. The problem is that none of those facts and although those facts bleed well into the majority opinion below, we don't know the veracity of any of those facts. Because right, but, so let me just, just to follow up on that, given the fact that jurisdiction, subject matter jurisdiction can be raised at any time, um, if it is raised at a later point in time um, and these facts are relevant to subject matter jurisdiction, why isn't it appropriate for the plaintiff to sub submit these facts in affidavit form? Uh, because as the case is cited in our brief, the, the North Carolina Supreme Court is not a fact-finding court. When affidavits are not filed below, 
uh, to allow the adversarial process to play out where the district court should have had that that information, those averments to be able to then allow for service of that uh, purported dismissal on the defendant. She was never served, given an opportunity to be heard in opposition to that motion. Then you have a serious procedural due process problem, and that's what happened below. But North Carolina Supreme Court doesn't find facts when an affidavit is filed for the first time on appeal because there's there's no way for this court to determine whether those facts are true. The fact-finding uh, prerogative is squarely within the district court, and that's one of the problems here because we, we see what this affidavit says, um, which was filed in opposition to a motion to dismiss at the Court of Appeals, but there's been no fact-finding determination to say, are they are any of these true and are any should any of these be district court factual findings and consistent with those legal conclusions? And that goes back to the theme about shortcuts in the system. And I think we, we chart a perilous course justice rules when um, there's been no passing of a finding of facts on any of those of averments. Mr. Uh, Lapidus, can I jump in and ask you about that? Um, are, is it your um, understanding that the document? the handwritten voluntary dismissal and then the subsequent handwritten um, note and both of the file stamps on it was before the district court judge at the time of the hearing? No, Justice Hudson. There's no indicia in this record that that, that court paper was ever before the district court judge for determination. But more importantly, that... So is it, that... Is it your understanding that the district court judge proceeds to a hearing without having the file, the court file? Well, Justice Hudson, even if she had the file, here are the procedural due process problems. That court paper, that of course wants to be construed as a Rule 60 motion, for example, that was never served on the defendant. And in this court's Craver versus Craver opinion, notice and opposition to be heard is a critical fundamental due process right in opposition to a motion. So the defendant well, didn't know, I'm sorry. Well, the... um. The district court judge's order specifically makes a finding that the court has subject matter jurisdiction. And uh, without any more specific findings, wouldn't that implicitly find whatever facts are necessary to support that? Well, I think Justice Hudson, when you read the district court's order, it it concluded that it didn't have subject matter jurisdiction, and that's why it's denied the DDPO. Um, and that's what court appointed amicus was charged to defend the, the ruling, which which is what what happened. But when you have a situation, Justice Hudson, where uh, a motion is not filed on, uh, is not served on an opposing party, and that opposing party is not given an opportunity to argue uh, against that motion, then that def uh, the defendant was not uh, permitted to establish a record for appellate review. And that's a fundamental due process problem that this court talked about in Craver versus Craver. And then the court never heard the motion. It never entered a written, it never it entered an order. So you have a complete short circuiting of the cornerstone procedural due process concerns that that you know form the bedrock of, of this state's jurisprudence. Well, is that and, is that a realistic assessment of the way that these DVPO proceedings happen in district court? My understanding is that they're supposed to be relatively um, informal and that they're not necessarily controlled by all sorts of procedural niceties that the parties are in. Um, very uncomfortable, sometimes frightening circumstances. They need to be act quickly, um, and that th that's the way that they proceed. And uh, I'm not sure. And the the trial court here specifically said, concluded of law in uh, as a matter of law, paragraph number one, the court has jurisdiction over the parties, and then proceeds to deal with the with the matter. Um, 
are, are you saying that there's a lot more procedural niceties that should be followed than typically happens in these cases? Uh, yes, Justice Hudson. Um, I think our, our friends on the other side, including Amiki, um, they concede that the rules of civil procedure apply to DVPO cases. And if 50B-2 um, says that you follow civil action and um, you need to follow the rules of civil procedure and the rules of civil procedure require service of a motion on an opposing party so that party can make an argument um, with respect to why that relief shouldn't be granted. But when that doesn't happen, I think we then chart a perilous course um, into only allowing procedural due process to occur when we agree with the, the merits of how that's going to come through. And I think that's not the way that North Carolina law should, should be interpreted. Um, how do you juxtapose that position with the uh, amicus brief by the former district court judges uh, that says that there is some relaxation of those kinds of rules in terms of the way that these kinds of procedures operate and that they are to inure to the benefit of the pro se uh, petitioner, such as the one here, uh, who desires to get a 50B, especially in light of the fact that the clerk's office did indeed uh, enter a second file stamp so as to show the district court judge, again, believing the amicus brief of the former district court judges, that the whole file was before the district court judge and that therefore the complaint was deemed accepted by the clerk in light of the way that these court proceedings typically operate. Well, Justice Morgan, first, it wasn't only the plaintiff that was pro se, it was the defendant that's pro se. And I, I think we need to recognize that we need to protect both of their rights in proceedings like this. Um, and, you know, rule of civil procedure eight and 10 and 11 all apply um, to this case. And, you know, it goes back to the point that Justice Newby brought up earlier is that, you know, plaintiff was equipped of multiple lawyers by the time this, this came for a hearing for permanent relief. And there was ample time to look at the record and figure out that there was a jurisdictional problem and file a proper motion that's noticed and give the defendant an opportunity to be heard. Um, just like in Carter versus Clowers at the Court of Appeals and, and give the court an opportunity to make the findings that we're all speculating about. We don't know that the facts that are in that affidavit are true. And we, we can't, we can't, I think, accept that as reality at this point on appeal. So but doesn't the speculation go, to use your term, both ways then in terms of the fact that you do have the amicus brief from the district court judges, the former ones, that say that indeed the way, according to them, that this kind of procedure operates would therefore uh, recognize the fact that the complaint was on the first day appropriately before the district court judge to proceed in the manner in which the district court judge did. Well, I think the problem, Justice Morgan, is that the complaint was voluntarily dismissed. And under North Carolina law, a VD terminates the case and precludes it completely. So then the question is, you have this refiling. The refiling is not signed. It's not dated. There's a word amended written on top. These are all the findings that the district court was supposed to make and figure out. We don't we don't know who wrote that on the unit that that refile document. We don't know who crossed it out. We're 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 saying all these things are possible, but the procedure and the jurisprudence of this state defers to the district court to go through the proper safeguards to say, okay, maybe there was a time, like maybe we could construe this you know, this refiled voluntary dismissal of some sort of motion, you know, for relief. I don't think you can because it wasn't, it wasn't signed and it wasn't dated. Um, but even if you do, you have to give the defendant service of that document. 
The district court just can't look at it and say, oh, I, I have jurisdiction over this. I'm going to I'm going to reinstate the lawsuit. I'm going to revive it unilaterally. You have to get if you have a motion, Craver versus Craver's court says you have to give the other side a chance to oppose the relief that's sought so you can make a record. Um, I think Justice oh. Urban has a question, but he might be muted. Oh, I, yes. I, I, I'm sorry. Go, go ahead, Justice Yes, I, I, I do have a question that's uh, um, moving us to the hearing that occurred when the plaintiff was represented. I understand your argument that there should have been a Rule 60 motion, but uh, it, it, I'm trying to understand why what happened at the June 7th hearing when the plaintiff was represented doesn't cure if in fact there was any jurisdictional defect doesn't cure it because at that point as i read the transcript and particularly reading from page five of the transcript the um, counsel for the plaintiff um, handed up um, an amended complaint that the amendment was to change to factually be clear about the gender of the parties but um, they make a motion to amend the counsel says um, you, the, you know, the defendant has agreed to that motion, your honor. So we would ask that you just grant that motion to amend and then we would move on. Um, at that point, the trial court says, yes, we, I grant the motion to amend the complaint. Um, wants to make sure that it is dated counsel, uh, requests permission to approach dates, the complaint at that point, the court has before it a complaint, an amended complaint. That's been properly dated um, has been consented to by the defendant. Why isn't at that point jurisdiction conferred on the district court? A few reasons justice rules. Um, 1st, that that original complaint was voluntarily dismissed. And if you look at page 16 of the record on appeal, you see that the only 2 items that were served on the defendant were the notice of hearing. And a copy of the original complaint. That odd, strange, unilaterally refiled document that that bears two file stamps was never served on the defendant. The defendant had no notice that a purported motion for some sort of relief to revive this lawsuit had ever been filed. So when she appeared at the June 7th hearing, she had no notice that there was going to be a motion or that there was a motion. She wasn't given an opportunity to be heard in opposition because there was no notice that it that it was even filed. And due process, procedural due process requires that she be afforded that responsibility. Even if you think that the arguments would ultimately not have any merit, she has um, a constitutional due process right in this state to make a record for appellate review, and she wasn't allowed to do that. Mr. Lapidus, but before you move move from that point, didn't the defendant make a general appearance at the uh, hearing on the merits? Well, Justice Urban, um, a general appearance might be sufficient to um, take care of personal jurisdiction concerns. Why not? Well, what I'm saying just is it, it might be for personal jurisdiction, but going back to the original core principles of subject matter jurisdiction, subject matter jurisdiction cannot be conferred by consent. A general appearance doesn't give the court subject matter jurisdiction. I, I, I understand that, but your, your, your basic argument is that um, there was no service of various documents, you know, to the extent that there may have been some defect in the process by which the uh, original dismissal. I'm trying to use my words carefully here because I don't want to, you know, say, you know, don't want to 
introduce further confusion into an already confusing situation. But it, you know, at, at some point, isn't the question of whether the process by which the dismissal was quote unquote cured, and I'm just using that word for lack of a better one, and I'm you know not understanding you to concede that it was. Uh, isn't that a non-jurisdictional question as compared to a jurisdictional question? Well, the sufficiency of the process to cure uh, the dismissal? Well, the jurisdictional question was conclusively established upon the voluntary dismissal. Of the well, you, you, I think you, you have conceded, I think, in your brief that there are some ways that a uh, voluntary dismissal can be effectively undone. One of them was the subject of Justice Earl's question, which is the filing or refiling of a complaint. Uh, there are cases that, that you've cited that suggest that you can use Rule 60 to do that. Uh, to the extent that there was what, what it was amounted to a Rule 60 process that wasn't necessarily done correctly, uh, with all the I's dotted and T's crossed, uh, does a deficient Rule 60 process that the defendant never objected to, is that is that jurisdiction? I think it is. Um, okay, and I, then tell me why, help me understand why. Well, you have a, a dismissed lawsuit and then you have a hearing um, that occurs seven days later where there's been some sort of purported motion filed for relief to revive a lawsuit, um, but the defendant wasn't ever served with that document. And I don't know of any authority in this state that permits a motion to be heard and decided without serving it on the other side without giving the other side a chance to argue in opposition to the motion and giving the district court the opportunity to make findings and conclusions and decide whether that relief should be granted. Does, a, does, a, does a defendant have the ability to waive that right? No, not in this instance, okay. Justice Irvin. The reason why is because you can't waive what you don't have knowledge of, right? Waiver, the essence of waiver, Justice Irvin, is the voluntary- Let me, let me ask you about that. Uh, it, it, as I understand the transcript, this is back to Justice Earls's question. The defendant's um, attorney agreed to the amendment to the original complaint, which in essence undid the so-called dismissal and agreed to change the nature of the uh, of the substantive complaint. Why doesn't that essentially amount to a Rule 60 um, that's agreed to by the defendant's counsel? Well, Justice Hudson, wait, the essence of waiver, and that goes back into Justice Irvin's good question, is voluntary relinquishment of a known right. This defendant had no knowledge that the plaintiff dismissed her lawsuit seven days earlier and was trying if to... She's in, if she's in the hearing where the documents are before the parties and she's agreeing to amend the document that had written on it that she voluntarily dismissed it, it... it I'm not sure how it would appear from the record that she has no knowledge if she's appearing in person and agreeing to amend it. Well, Justice Hudson, it's because the defendant was never served and had no knowledge of the attempt to revive the dismissed lawsuit, which is for the problem. There's so much confusion on this record that that's why it's best, I think, Justice Hudson, to let the district courts solve this problem according to settled principles of procedure, which is allowing the other side to be served allowing the other side to make opposing arguments and then letting the district court enter a written order. There's no written order. Well, she did agree to the to allow the parties to um to agree to their uh, agreed amendment to the substantive complaint that was by both parties. 
that well, didn't seem like that. That didn't seem like the defendant wanted to oppose that. She agreed to it. The problem, I think, Justice Hudson, is that the the proceeding, whatever that or that purported amendment that the district court made, it was void out of initio under NRA TRP. Once that voluntary dismissal was filed, it was void from the beginning. It was over. It was done. You are well within your rebuttal time. Yes, Justice. I was just going to wrap up and seeing that and for these reasons, we respectfully request among others that this court vacate the Court of Appeals majority opinion from the district court's order or remand to the district court for a hearing on the Rule 60 motion. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. Thank you, Chief Justice Newby. May it please the court, Christopher Brook for plaintiff appellee me. Uh, at the start, I just want to say happy new year to the court. I hope that your 2022 uh, is off to a good start and that the year treats you and your families well. Uh, turning to the matter at hand, uh, defendant is right. The rules and the case law matter. Applying the rules and that case law to this appeal will result in its dismissal or in the alternative to this court affirming the court of appeals. The joinder preservation in 60B arguments made by defendant are, are not properly before this court. Uh, one key fact at the outset, the Court of Appeals offered defendant pro bono counsel. She declined that counsel. So beyond responding to plaintiff's proposed record on appeal, stating she didn't want to participate in this appeal, and arguing very briefly that 50B's exclusion of ME was constitutional, the defendant did not argue at the Court of Appeals. The law here is straightforward. Rule 28A says that the scope of review on appeal is limited to issues so presented in the several briefs. Issues not presented and discussed in a party's briefs are deemed abandoned. This court unanimously held in State v. Brent in 2013 that the other issue defendant raises before this court was not considered by the Court of Appeals because defendant failed to raise it in his brief before that court. Thus, defendant has abandoned the issue by failing to raise it in his brief before the Court of Appeals. Having failed to raise the non-jurisdictional, joinder, preservation, and 60B arguments that defendant relies upon before this court at the Court of Appeals, she's re waived review of these issues by this court. Uh, it bears further mentioning in regards to the joinder argument. That the joinder argument defendant urges upon this court today uh, was first raised uh, in the dissent at the Court of Appeals by Judge Tyson. Uh, as Judge Tyson noted, however, in his dissent in Viar that was subsequently adopted by this court, appellate judges cannot create appeals for parties. But even if this court reaches the merits of this dispute, defendants' arguments are meritless for a number of the reasons that were uh, stressed um, uh, in uh, the, the prior moments. The strike through here constituted a 60B request for relief that the trial court granted. To start, the parties and the dissent agree that 60B relief is possible subsequent to the filing of a voluntary dismissal. Indeed, our courts repeatedly have referred to 60B as the grand reservoir of equitable power. Requests for Rule 60B relief are liberally construed. The Carter Court at the Court of Appeals said that form and, quote, nomenclature are unimportant. 
Requests for Rule 60B relief are, are not even strictly necessary. Barnes, Taylor at the Court of Appeals, as well as uh, one of defense counsel's uh, treatise, uh, establish that motions uh, are not necessary to receive 60B relief. Those sources also stand for the proposition that trial courts can act of their own initiative to grant Rule 60B relief. And appellate courts proceed likewise. They exhibit a market preference for litigants having the chance to dispose of their case on the merits, elevating form over substance. And that includes... Can you, can you point to us where the defendant was made aware that the initial case had been voluntarily dismissed before uh, the strike through? Uh, Chief Justice, uh, the statute says, and this is 50B-2A, that when a DVPO is sought, the summons shall be issued and served quote, through appropriate law enforcement agency, and says further, quote, attachments to the summons shall include the complaint, notice of hearing, any temporary or ex parte order that should, uh, has been issued, uh, or other papers. Now, defendant, uh, defendant's counsel repeatedly states that this uh, voluntary dismissal and strike through was not served upon the defendant, but never cites anything for that contention. It's an entirely bald. So my question is, is there anything in the record that shows that the defendant was made aware of there having been a dismissal such that the defendant would knowingly waive if that were appropriate, waive any notice that this is now converted to a 60B uh, motion. Uh, there's nothing that affirmatively establishes that that document was served upon uh, the uh, defendant in this instance, but the statute establishes that other papers ought to be served on the defendant. I think that establishes a presumption that that would have been served. Also, this was in the court file uh, the entire time. Uh, in Wake County DVPO court, it's actually in the courtroom when this proceeding occurs, but as was highlighted. Do you agree that a uh, party, uh, the, the defendant, uh, was entitled to know that the case had been dismissed and that the current posture of the case was to uh, revive it through 60B? Uh, in this case, the way that the case law operates, that would not have prejudiced or changed the trajectory of this uh, proceeding in any way, shape, or form, Chief Justice Newby. And the Carter Court looks to whether there's prejudice for treating the relief that the trial court offers as 60B relief. And just accepting on its face uh, the defendant's citation-free argument that Judge Eagles and Judge Worley and the defendant were unaware of this strike through, uh, this due process argument is, is uncompelling because at bottom it is that defendant would be able, have been able to stand up and object to the validity of the strike through. Uh, and that because she wasn't able to do that, she can block years on any from pursuing a DVPO. But if she'd made that objection at the trial court, Chief Justice Newby, one of two things would have happened. She would have been rejected on the record, or the district court would have instructed ME to refile the exact same 50B. Neither of those changes the substance of this proceeding, just you know, in a very immaterial fashion of the form. So are you saying that there was error but no prejudice? Uh, 
with regard to this aspect? No, Your Honor. Uh, again, I think there's a presumption that she was served with this document. That presumption has in no way been rebutted because there's just a bold assertion uh, by the defendant that she did not receive these documents. But I'm just saying, if accepting for the sake of argument that bold assertion as true, uh, yes, it's a non-prejudicial one that the case law would treat uh, as not interfering with 60B relief uh, being granted. Um, and let, let, let me ask just for clarity, uh, at what point uh, was the defendant represented by counsel? Defendant was not represented by counsel until my, my appreciation is this court, uh, shortly after the Court of Appeals opinion uh, was issued. Um, our, our appellate courts uh, extend deference to trial court uh, relief. Uh, that is 60B relief, construing relief that's provided on other or ambiguous grounds as Rule 60B relief. This court, in matter of ward, uh, interpreted a request for relief on other grounds uh, as 60B relief, despite the fact 60B had never been mentioned prior to the Supreme Court of North Carolina. The Court of Appeals in the Murray, Alston, and Carter cases uh, acted similarly. And as I mentioned to Chief Justice Newby, the Carter Court asked whether there's prejudice in treating a, uh, a relief provided by the trial court as 60B relief. More broadly, uh, appellate courts review uh, uh, grants of 60B relief for abuse of discretion, whether dealing with grants that are provided on unclear grounds, as in the Austin case, or in a more straightforward way, uh, as in the Henry E.H. case. And if there is, as there appears to be, um, the, the question of subject matter jurisdiction, um, does that have a different standard of review uh, from this court um, with regard to the alleged due process violation by not having been served with a 60B motion or uh, the defendant uh, not specifically being told of the dismissal and the attempt to revive? In other words, given one, her pro se status, as well as um, the fact that this is not, um, well, this goes to the very heart of a court's ability to act, which is subject matter jurisdiction. Should that be a factor? There is a different standard of review, Chief Justice Newby, when we're dealing with subject matter jurisdiction. That's de novo and it's non waivable. Uh, whereas when you're dealing with a request for 60B relief that's on review or a grant of 60B relief, that's abuse of discretion and it is waivable. Um, but I, there are two different acts here, as I understood Justice Irvin to be intimating, uh, that should not be conflated in this instance. The voluntary dismissal is a matter of subject matter jurisdiction. But the subsequent strike through that occurs 39 minutes later is an effort to receive relief from uh, the, the, the mistaken voluntary dismissal. Just because they're related doesn't mean they receive uh, the same analysis. The Court of Appeals opinion in NREH in in, in uh, notes that uh, relief from a voluntary dismissal sought through 60B is reviewed for abuse of discretion. It's not a view, reviewed 
novo. Moreover, the Carter Court looks at prejudice uh, when considering whether um, 60B relief prejudice the non-moving, the non-receiving party. Obviously, prejudice is not a concept that's found in subject matter jurisdiction. So it highlights that these two discrete events uh, receive different standards of review, but also one is waivable and one is, is not waivable. And here in these requests for relief from uh, a voluntary dismissal it constitute a request for 60B relief. There's nothing cryptic about striking through a document and saying, I strike through this voluntary dismissal. I do not want to dismiss this action. How does your 60B relief argument mesh with what the amicus briefs discuss in terms of the way that these court proceedings typically operate in terms of the fact that you have pro se individuals uh, seeking domestic violence protective orders in circumstances that are often dire and even dangerous from the aspect of, as one of the amicus briefs says, it could take as much as an hour for a complaint to be reprocessed in terms of taking a conventional voluntary dismissal under Rule 41, as opposed to operating more quickly in terms of the environment in which these uh, DVPOs are sought. Uh, how does your 60B argument mesh with that concept that's related to us in these briefs? I think the fact that we're in a DVPO uh, proceeding uh, underlines the fact that this is the unusual case where 60B relief can be granted even when the form of the request is not uh, you know, strictly uh, motion uh, compliant. That's what the Barnes case stands for. That's what the Taylor case stands for. That's again, what defense counsel's treatise says that when there's an unusual case, a trial court can grant 60B relief even when the request for relief comes in a form other than a motion. And Justice Morgan, as you note, this is uh, a, a deeply unusual uh, case and the DVPO proceedings are unusual as well. It's an instance where you're dealing with parties as the amicus uh, amply illustrate who are often terrified uh, and suffering, suffering from emotional trauma. In this case, Emmy had never been to the Wake County Courthouse before and she's there with her mother 36 hours after she's been you know, suffering a barrage of both physical and emotional intimidation uh, from uh, TJ. Um, and the DVPO proceedings are set up in a, a somewhat unique fashion here to provide relief in a timely and expeditious fashion so that we can de-escalate these circumstances before they result in further violence. It also involves a, a more robust role for uh, the clerks uh, being played here. 50BD2 says that the clerks, quote, shall provide to pro se complainants all forms that are necessary or appropriate to enable them to proceed pro se pursuant to this section. But the unusual nature of this proceeding doesn't stop there. Uh, it also includes uh, Emmy almost contemporaneously uh, recognizing her error and taking steps to address that error. And following the clerk's instructions, she strikes through the voluntary dismissal. This is after, as Justice Earls noted previously, 
Um, uh, Emmy had appeared before Judge Eagles. Judge Eagles told her she could not receive a 50B, but that she could seek a 50C. She goes back to the clerk's office. She's provided a 50C and a voluntary dismissal for the 50B from the clerk, told to complete those, but she almost instantaneously recognizes that she wants to proceed with the 50B. And then following the clerk's instructions, she strikes through the voluntary dismissal. And in so doing, she checks a number of the key boxes for 60B relief, identifying the error, in this case, the inadvertent dismissal, identifying the relief sought, in this case, rescission of the voluntary dismissal. And then, as I believe you noted earlier, Justice Morgan, she reclocks and refiles the withdrawn voluntary dismissal. And then the orders that follow that from the trial court judges grant the relief that M.E. sought by allowing her to proceed to the merits. First, I want to underline this point, as I believe was noted by Justice Hudson previously, and as noted by the district court judges amicus, it's standard practice for trial court judges to review their files and ensure that they understand what is proceeding in front of them. So this voluntary dismissal would have been in the file and the strike through would have been in the file. Judge Eagles and Judge Worley, there has to be a presumption that they would have known that and grappled with that. Judge Eagles finds there is subject matter jurisdiction, but she cannot grant relief because Emmy and TJ are not in a protected relationship. It also bears mentioning that the 50B filings are, are marked amended, the hearing date, for the 50B is changed by Judge Eagles, so her initials are by the change of that date. The 50B hearing date is, to li is lined up with the 50C hearing date because that is granted and it has to come back on for hearing within 10 days. It's entirely consistent with knowing that Emmy is proceeding with the 50B and the 50C and hearing them together. And then Judge Worley, based, quote, on review of file and with defendant in court indicates the court has jurisdiction over the parties and the subject matter and proceeds to the merits. There's no abuse of discretion in seeing this strike through for what it was, the unusual request for relief from somebody in crisis and allowing the plaintiff to proceed to the merits. Um, the defendant's efforts to Monday morning quarterback the trial court without good cause in this instance related to the 60B must be rejected. Uh, turning to the preservation point uh, briefly, your honors, uh, the, you know, uh, the requirements of 10A1 are, are well known. Before you move totally away from that point, Mr. Brook, let me follow up on the question that Mr. Uh, that Justice Earls asked Mr. Lapidus. Uh, you had this, you had, once the parties got to the hearing on the merits before Judge Worley, there was a motion made to amend the complaint. Yes, Your Honor. Which was consented to by the defendant, apparently. Yes, Your uh, And was allowed. Is there any basis for concluding that the allowance of that amendment might have been tantamount to a refiling of a complaint for purposes of Rule 41? I think so, uh, Your Honor, because in that case, the the substance of the complaint had been changed to reflect the fact that they're in a same-sex dating relationship. Uh, that is, as was uh, highlighted by Justice Earl, signed off on uh, by TJ, and then she was allowed uh, to be heard 
in regards to whether that 50B was going to enter. I don't think it's necessary for this court to consider that, um, uh, you know, sort of a separate um, uh, uh, filing or a separate 50B proceeding. I think it had already been revived uh, by the strike through, um, but I think it could be considered in that fashion by the court. Uh, moreover, again, it underlines that there's no prejudice here to proceeding um, because the defendant had the opportunity to be heard in regards to the 50B and the request for relief. So again, the, the due process arguments, uh, to the extent they're accepted on their face, despite their shaky factual underpinnings, um, uh, there's simply no showing of prejudice that can be made. Uh, and we're elevating, the defendants attempting to elevate uh, uh, subs form over substance in the extreme. And, and before, again, before you move on, and I'll let you do so in just a second, but one other question that occurred to me, and I uh, didn't want to interrupt Mr. Lapidus any more than I already did, so I'm going to interrupt you instead. The, uh, but I hope he will comment on it. Uh, let the, the voluntary dismissal bears two file stamps. Uh, let's say hypothetically that at the time that the handwritten entry on the voluntary dismissal of purporting to revoke the dismissal was file stamped. The clerk's office had also file stamped the complaint a second time. Would that have made any difference? Uh, no, I, I don't think so, uh, uh, Your Honor, because I think that uh, the file stamping of the, the complaint didn't need to be file stamped a second time for that strike through to constitute a 60B. I, I think it bears Underlining again, what what happened here is the defendant had to ask the clerk to get the voluntary dismissal uh, back from them to strike through it and to reclock it. I, I think that that underlines, you know, first that the clerks were playing an active role here and um, indicating that this was the way to proceed. But it also makes clear, and again, there's nothing cryptic about um, what. Uh, the defendant strike through says, I strike through this voluntary dismissal. I do not want to dismiss this action, but especially coupled with the effort to get this document back from the clerks, strike through it, and then reclock it makes plain that there's an effort by the pro at this point, pro se plaintiff to seek 60B relief. I don't think a refiling of the complaint was necessary or is dispositive in regards to um, uh, whether that can be considered a 60B relief. Regarding very briefly, your honors, the preservation arguments that the 10 a 1 requirements are well understood to, to timely request, uh, make a timely request stating the grounds for the ruling the party desires desires of the specific grounds. Are not apparent from the context and to obtain a ruling in regards to the timely request requirement. You know, the bottom line is to call the court's attention to a matter upon which the court wants a ruling. That's a flexible context specific inquiry. It doesn't require. Magic words per this um, uh, court's unanimous opinion in Murphy, or filing as defense counsel when he was amicus counsel at the Court of Appeals suggested at the Court of Appeals, a law, you know, a, an appellate brief with citation to law review articles in DVPO court. Preservation can occur by uh, referencing key cases from the applicable jurisprudence, key concepts from the applicable jurisprudence. The Burcell case uh, from this court in 2019 unanimously held that those sorts of references can serve to preserve a matter for appellate review. 
Murphy again, Eat said even unclear, indirect, implicit presentations of constitutional issues asserted will suffice. Plaintiff's counsel preserved uh, this matter in three different ways before Judge Worley, three mutually enforced, reinforcing ways. Uh, first, the context uh, reveals uh, just generally preservation. There's a discussion between plaintiff's counsel and the trial court centering around the constitutionality of excluding those in same-sex dating relationships from the statutory scheme. And as the court, as we've discussed at length this morning, included amending forms to correct the exclusion and reflect the same-sex nature of the proceedings. Judge Worley acknowledges Emmy would have received a DVPO if the parties had been of the opposite sex. It's preserved by reference to case law. In this case, plaintiff's counsel made reference to perhaps the most famous due process equal protection decision of modern times, Obergefell. It makes reference to a case directly on point from a neighboring state, South Carolina, adopting the precise remedy that the plaintiff uh, sought at the Court of Appeals um, and striking down South Carolina's similar exclusion in their domestic violence protective order regime, Doe. And then it's preserved by plaintiff's counsel making the foundational due process equal protection argument that there's no rational basis for excluding plaintiff from access to the 50B here. And Judge Worley plainly engaged and understood this argument. The order that she entered says plaintiff argued that she should be allowed to proceed on her request for a DVPO because the current North Carolina General Statute 51B is unconstitutional after the United States Supreme Court decision in Obergefell versus Hodges. And the What's response to the uh, defendant's position that uh, all that you've just said about the, the preservation by the plaintiff was just a quote passing unquote reference to these matters that you're raising uh, in the transcript or at least the way it's depicted in the brief. It's only one paragraph long in terms of what was said uh, at that time on behalf of the plaintiff. So if it is arguably a passing reference, how does that constitute sufficient preservation? Well, uh, Justice Morgan, it's, it's not a passing reference, and, and there's more than one paragraph. There's a colloquy back and forth between plaintiff's counsel and Judge Worley. That one paragraph, for instance, um, does not include and excludes the discussion about the South Carolina case um, uh, where South Carolina Supreme Court struck down a similar uh, exclusion here. But Justice Morgan, it also bears mentioning here that plaintiff's counsel didn't just preserve these issues at the trial court. Plaintiff's counsel made a winning constitutional argument that should have allowed Emmy to receive her um, DVPO at the trial court. Um, the rational, the argument that there's no rational basis review, um, uh, you don't have to take our word for it that that's a winning argument. When Mr. Lapidus was pressed at the Court of Appeals about whether this exclusion was unconstitutional. He acknowledged it was unconstitutional, but he didn't only do that. He also said, there's no rational basis for this exclusion. So he used the same words as plaintiff's counsel to explain why this was unconstitutional. Chief Judge McGee's opinion does a similar thing and says, we further hold that North Carolina General Statute 50B-1B6 as applied to plaintiff and those similarly situated cannot withstand even rational basis review. If a winning constitutional argument does not preserve a matter for appellate review, Your Honor, I'm not sure what can preserve 
a matter for appellate review. Uh, finally, uh, very briefly in regards to joiner, your, joiner, your honors, uh, joiner, as I mentioned previously, is waived. It's not necessary here uh, for the reasons stated uh, in the brief. I'm uh, willing and happy to rest on the brief. The state's brief also at great length explains why joiner is not of legislative leadership is not necessary uh, in this instance. I think one final point bears mentioning here in regards to joiner. If the legislature and legislative leadership wish to be involved in this case, they've had ample opportunity to be involved through the proper course of intervention. Briefing concluded in the Court of Appeals a year and a half ago. The Court of Appeals decided this case more than a year ago. The Court of Appeals decision was front page news. Not only is this issue not before the court, not only is legislative leadership in this instance not a necessary, not necessary party, but it doesn't appear that the legislative leadership wishes to be involved in this litigation as they've had a means to be involved and have not sought to avail themselves of that means. In closing, your honors, uh, defendant argues contrary to black letter law in seeking to pursue this abandoned appeal and in her merits arguments. These arguments are not only wrong, but fundamentally misapprehend the nature of trial court practice, especially DVPO proceedings. Accepting these arguments would unsettle the administration of justice for no discernible benefits by Monday morning quarterbacking trial court docket management, by requiring appellate briefs to preserve an issue in DVPO court for appellate review, while on the other hand, requiring legislative leadership participation anytime the constitution is invoked. The court, this court should follow the governing law and dismiss defendant's appeal or affirm the Court of Appeals opinion reversing the trial court denial of the DVPO and therefore allow plaintiff to seek an extension of the DVPO if she so chooses. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Uh, rebuttal. Thank you, Chief Justice Newby. Uh, in, in response to the question you asked uh, my friend for the plaintiff, uh, please take a look at uh, the transcript in this matter, uh, page 3, lines 10 through 12. Uh, that will conclusively establish that uh, the plaintiff had two lawyers at, on June 7, 2018, when the hearing for permanent relief on the DVPO uh, was heard. Um, uh, my friend for the plaintiff also um, uh, made an important point I think bears mentioning is, even if this court ends up affirming the constitutional merits ruling, it must vacate the portion of the majority opinion that directs entry of an automatic DVPO against the defendant and instead require a hearing for the district court to determine whether there's any conduct sufficient to trigger such relief under 50B at the present time, the COA remanded the case to the district court for automatic entry of a DVPO without any hearing based on conduct from three years ago, a statutorily unauthorized result. Um, with respect to Justice Urban and Justice Earl's questions and Justice Hudson's questions, a party cannot amend a complaint that has been dismissed. That was void out of initia. Um, and uh, final point here is, it goes back to my theme about shortcuts. If we only 
conclude that it's appropriate to accord procedural due process to arguments that we think have merit or that would, would, would be or wouldn't be prejudicial would really threaten the integrity of the system. There was no service. There was no hearing. There was no written order. There were no findings of fact and no conclusions. I think that we set a perilous course if we accept that reality as a legitimate basis to have trial court jurisprudence uh, continue in that fashion. So I think this court should call on its institutional role as a guardian of the law to just make sure that the, we follow these time-honored principles when we're deciding this. And uh, final point on preservation um, in my remaining seconds is the problem is we couldn't determine whether there was a facial or as applied challenge. We couldn't determine that, um, but that's required by a trinity of controlling statutes that require facial challenges to be uh, heard by a three-judge panel. So thank you, Councilman. Madam Clark. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina will be in recess for 15 minutes. God save the state and this honorable court.